Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Expertise Podcast. I'm your host, Roland Martin, and I hope that today's conversation will expand your knowledge. Today, I welcome Chuck Yancey to the show. Chuck is a professor of psychology at Messiah University. And in our conversation, he talks about different experiences that he's had in the field, and especially about the experiences that he's had from his counseling that he's done over the last number of years. He also has a special interest in Anabaptists, and that comes up a couple times in our conversation as, uh, as we talk about that. And I was, of course, interested in that too, being a, a conservative Mennonite. And it was actually through an uh, Instagram page called Mennomade that he found out about uh, the podcast. And he told me that he's been a fan and I was really glad that he reached out. It was great to get to know him a little bit and learn a lot from him from this podcast conversation. I hope that you too will enjoy the conversation and learn from his expertise. Welcome, Chuck, to the Everyday Expertise podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you here this evening. Well, thank you. I'm excited to talk to you as well. All right. So uh, tell me, what uh, what keeps you busy currently, or what does your work look like? Sure. Well, right now, I'm between semesters. We uh, have a, had a, had an extra long semester because at the beginning of the fall, they decided because of COVID, they'd give us an extra two weeks. They basically had the first semester, fall semester, end early, and then they had the spring semester start a little bit later. Okay. So that's been a, a nice thing. We, we start next week, so I'm prepping okay. right now for classes. And also, uh, because I do therapy as well, I've been doing some extra therapy sessions. And so uh, more than more than normal, uh, COVID has also, someone told me the other, day that, the other day that they thought that COVID was the great intensifier. And I would say that that's probably true. I think it has really brought, uh, particularly couples, it's either made you better or caused your problems to come to the surface in a different <laughs> way. So I've had plenty of counseling opportunities lately. Yeah, I see. Um, how long a break did you get from uh, between your semesters? So they decided that we would we would stop having classes. The uh, for your Canadian listeners, uh, American uh, Thanksgiving. So we went up until the Tuesday before whatever that last Tuesday of November. And then we had okay. finals only online the first week of December. And so okay. then we've been on break since then until oh, okay. next week. So my students were saying, we've never remembered a time when we've had almost a two-month break between yeah. semesters. So it's been about seven weeks, about six and a half weeks, which is a oh, wow, really yeah. long time. Yeah, that is really long. long. Okay, very good. <laughs> really long. Yeah, we, we, got a, we got an extra week as well. They just they decided kind of uh, right at the end of maybe November, um, that we we're going to start a week later here in January just to give everyone a, a mental break, I guess. But that meant that we had a three-week break, not a, not a six- not, or seven-week break. So. <laughs> Which is more <laughs> reasonable, really. Yeah, yeah it, it, was, it, was, it was good. It was, it was good to have an extra week, but I was ready to get back into it. Um, as as uh, when we started up at uh, this past Monday was, was my first day back. Okay. So... Um, yeah, do you do you teach just psychology courses? Are you teaching other things as well? Or no, I just teach psych courses. So um, I used to teach a, a first year sem a writing seminar class. Um, or well, that's been a number of years ago now. But at this point, I just teach I teach counseling theories, abnormal psychology, 
uh, adolescent development, um, both. Okay. All of those are in my interest. And then I teach a class that no one else wants to teach. But at once upon a time in my life, I thought about being a history teacher. And so I teach the history of psychology, okay. <laughs> uh, which, which most people hate. But w- one of the things that I, I've learned to do with that class is turn it into basically an entire semester story. And I really... Uh-huh. I make it into a story and I talk about the people. Uh, I, I find that when you look at the people and you put them and you, and you develop who they are and you make them real, it really brings that kind of boring history together and you get to see, I mean, the history of psychology has some really crazy people in it. And so, which is ironic, but, but it, <laughs> it, it, it really, it really uh, brings it to life and you get to see kind of the, the interesting forces and, and in some ways their own, uh, psychological problems and the beliefs they've had about the world and, and faith and all of those things really come through in a really nice way when you do it that way. Neat. Very good. So is your teaching, does that take up pretty much all of your time or are you doing some other, other things also? So, uh, so I, do, I do counseling on the side mm-hmm. and then I'm also in the process of uh, writing a book right now on the, um, on the history of mental health movement in uh, conservative uh, old order Mennonites and Amish, um, and so I'm looking at which, which is why I ended up in Canada a couple of years ago. I went up to um, uh, Eagles, Eagles Wing. Yep, Eagles Wing. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I went up there, drove up there, and visited there. Well, probably two years ago now. Wow, it's hard okay. to believe it's been that long. Um, mm-hmm. And which, which is, which is going to have a chapter in the book, uh, the story of Eagle Wings. Okay. And so that'll be included in there as well. Some, I read good. someplace that uh, writing a book is like washing an elephant. You don't know where to start, start and you don't know where to stop, and you don't know what you've done. So it's really true. It's, okay. Is this your first been, time doing that? or It is. I've never book, written yeah. a book before. Okay. So I, I sometimes wonder what I've uh, – tried to achieve here and what I'm doing. It's, it's, it's been, I've learned a lot. Uh, it's been a fascinating journey, but, um, it just takes a lot of time. Yeah. Was that, uh, was that your idea of the project to do, or did you kind of get, get pushed and prodded? No. So, so, um, a number of years ago, I worked uh, as a therapist at Green Pasture. Green Pasture is a a mental health, it's associated with Philhaven, but it was built by Amish and Old Order Mennonites. Okay. It's a house. It's a house where they have their members come, and then they have professionals that will will do counseling with the, their members that are there. And so that really got me interested in um, mental health and Amish and Old Order Mennonites and uh, conservative Mennonites of all stripes. And so uh, then I went into teaching, but I never, I put that in the back of my head and I could never quite get, get rid of that idea. And then okay. two years ago, I took a sabbatical from Messiah where I've been, where I've been teaching. Mm-hmm. And that's when I went and I drove around and I tried to find as, ended up with finding 26 treatment facilities across Canada and, and, the, and the U.S. And so that's, that really got me deep into that world. And that's, that's where that whole interest came from. Um, met met some fascinating people. There's just some really, really amazing counselors out there that um, uh, they're just Amish and Mennonite men and women who are doing some great stuff out there without a lot of formal education. Lots yeah. of times, no formal education. But okay, which is well, really is, fun. That is fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if you have uh, things to say here, but what kind of are maybe some of uh, just to get to know you a little bit here? What are some of the things that you do on a typical day, or what? Uh, some yep. of the things that your work involves. Sure. So, so 
um, this is going to get in some hobbies and I can develop them as well. Yeah, um, yeah that's great. My, my day normally starts out uh, with a run. I often will do um, a morning run about five five thirty sometime in the in the morning. I try to get out and get out and get a run. Uh, I live in a little small town, and so the street lights uh, provide me enough light that I can that I can run there. Mm-hmm. And then I I double dip there. I I listen to podcasts while I'm nice. running. It's it's, it's I, I tell you podcasts have. Uh, I, I I need to, I try to put limits on how many podcasts I subscribe to because it's <laughs> it's it's. it's for somebody who is, uh, for those of you who are Enneagram, Enneagram people, I'm an Enneagram 5, and so I just love information, and, and so mm-hmm. podcasts are the death of me because I can listen to them indefinitely. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then after that, it, it depends on the day. I, I, I'm going to do, like, some days now I'll do, the other day I had, like, five sessions of therapy that I did mm-hmm. during that one day. And, and then some days I'm doing my research, trying to to flesh out some more of the book and talking to people yeah. about that. And then, um, like yesterday, I spent the day developing syllabi and looking at Great. assignments that I wanted to change. And so the one thing I'll say about in between semesters, you you have a lot more opportunity. Then, as you know, having taught, once the school year hits, it feels like a tsunami hits you yeah. and you get swept up in the school year. And then it's like, ah, I can rest here a little bit. But but so some I still do. I still do some therapy during the school year. I just don't get to my research near as much as I do right. when I'm when I'm between semesters or the summer. Yeah, yeah. So, is um, how how often do you teach per week? Like, are you teaching three classes a week for each of your classes, or I mean, three lectures so, a week? Or yeah, so we teach four classes, and then oh. I have two classes that are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then I have two classes that are Tuesday, Thursday. So, okay. so it's it's two classes each day. Uh, which, yep. for those of you who teach high school and elementary, it doesn't seem like much because you're up there six hours in a row, except for your planning, planning day. But uh, it, it yep. still has its own issues. But it's a, it's a different. I think it's a different kind of pace than what you have in elementary school and yep. high school. It's just a, a different. Yeah, style. well, it's I'm I'm always impressed with with uh, with professors, and it doesn't seem like they do a lot of teaching. But yeah, when they have like two, three, four classes, they're trying to do research on the side, write a book, <laughs> keep track of all the emails and students emailing them and, uh, and getting after them and things like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed with, with what you guys do. So It, it really is. Wrong. The point that you pointed out, it really becomes a juggling act of how to juggle all of those things. That's where I think one of the biggest skills is, is figuring out how to do that balance. Yeah. And, and again, there's sometimes I don't do that well. Yeah. Have you read um, uh, by Cal Newport, Deep Work? Have you heard of that book at all? No, I haven't. Okay. Deep Work. Um, it's a, yeah, it was, a, it was a fascinating read, but he talks about a professor that he would, a, he would actually do all of his research. He would take a, like, teach one semester and then take a semester off, and he would just focus solely on teaching when he was teaching and then, then focus solely on research for, uh, for his time off and things like that. And, felt that that worked a lot better than than trying to juggle all those things so maybe there's that's, something to that that's that's wise advice actually yeah. i need to read that book <laughs> yeah it's a, it was it was it was great for a for a student too just thinking about focus and concentration and and how much that can help yeah yeah did you have any other uh, hobbies or anything that you wanted to talk about before we get a little bit into your story um, so i grew up on a farm and i live in a little town now but i i still love farming enough that i have I have a, a 
maybe a quarter acre land, but I have oh. 27 chickens on that. So nice. I, I, I jam as many chickens as, in there as I can. So nice. um, I, I don't think I don't think that Canada is really my hobby, but um, I, I've had this strange fascination with Canada since I was a child. Okay. Um, I'm probably because I grew up in Michigan. And so we used to get Canadian stations. And oh, okay. then, and then, and then I went to college. I, I'll try to keep this story short. Then I, <laughs> then I went to college and my first, my, my, in my first year, I had a roommate from Brooks, Alberta. Okay. And then my second year, I switched colleges actually. So the first year I went to Rosedale Bible Institute, which mm -hmm. is kind of a faith builders back then. It was more like faith builders. Then mm -hmm. I went to Cedarville University, uh, Cedarville College at the time. And I, my roommate there was from Arburg. Is that how you pronounce it? Manitoba. Okay. Um, yep. and, and so I had my second Canadian roommate, my wife at Rosedale, her room, her roommate was from Elmira, Ontario. Okay. And so, and so then when I was in grad school, um, one of my good friends was a French Canadian priest, which was probably the most unique relationship I had. And, um, he, he really wanted me to move to Canada. He, he, he worked so hard. He wanted, so he ran these these children's homes in, in Alberta, in Edmonton, okay. and, and uh, where was the other one at? Outside of Calgary. And so I'll never forget, he, he said, Chuck, you've got to move to Canada. I need you to be a, a psychologist for me in these children's homes. And so he sent me this contract. One day a week, I was going to be working in Yellowknife. I was going to be the, wow. <laughs> I, I, which he was going to fly me to Yellow, Yellowknife on Mondays, I think it was. And, and, and he also had arranged so that I would be the psychological consultant to the Canadian Royal Circus, which I was like, wow, this, this is crazy. <laughs> and, and then I started getting these letters from these, these Mennonite brethren pastors in Edmonton. Uh, and they were like, I didn't even know what a Mennonite brethren was back at that time. And, and uh, he, they'd say, we have no idea who you are, but this French-Canadian priest will not let us go until he, they, he, we write you to say that we want you to come to our church, so we're doing that. <laughs> so he, he, the, the closest I got, he used to put on this big country music concert to support his children's home. And okay. so he, he flew me up there to, to wow. kind of en entice me to come up there. And so the weirdest thing, this is probably the weirdest, one of the weirdest things in my life, although I've had other weird things. I worked backstage at this country music concert for three days. <laughs> and so I cleaned out the dressing rooms of these singers when they came through and fed them meals. I, was kind of, I didn't cook them. I just carried their, their food okay, to them. Well. Which so he was, put you to work as he, as he was trying to <laughs> convince you to, to join him there? He, he said, he, he said, I know enough Mennonites in Canada that I know you like to work. And so I'm assuming since you're a Mennonite that you'll want to work as well. So <laughs> I got beat for being a Mennonite there on yeah. that one as well. So, so for years, we would go to Canada every year. Um, so I've got, I've got to see some of Canada's greatest secrets. Uh, my, 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 my third son now lives just across the line at uh, the border in upstate New York. So one of the things, oh, okay. one of my, one of my fun privileges that I've had to do because he lives so close to Ottawa is that we've gone up and skated the canal a couple times. Oh, which, neat. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a really that, fun experience. Yeah. It, it really is. I was struck by, it is so classic Canadian in some ways, because when I was, especially the last time I was skating the canal, you see all nationalities up there skating the canal. And then you have Mennonites, you have, you just, it's just a, 
a, a small little snapshot of Canada in some really yeah. ways. It's, it's yeah. a really cool experience. Um, yeah, but anyways, that's great. So, so can yeah. I love Canada. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And a uh, nice little, uh, maybe a little um, view into to some of the stories that you have to share, I guess. So might be a good good time to ask you a little bit about kind of, yeah, what, what's brought you to the, to the point here um, where you are. So maybe I'll start this way. What, uh, what introduced you to the, to the field of psychology or, or, or what got, gave you an interest in, in, uh, in, yeah, in that field? Sure. You, you know, um, I talked a little bit about how uh, many of the people in psychology had their own stories. And so that, that's really true for me, too. I would say there's two kinds of streams of thought that got me interested in psychology when I was in high school. And, and then when I went to Rosedale. But um, the first was, I, I, I didn't think about this until many years later, that um, one of the things that my dad was famous for was people were always coming over when we were on the farm, and um, they would talk to him for hours, which was, as a, as a farm kid, it was nice and annoying at the same time, because when they came to talk, that meant that we didn't have to do anything. So um, <laughs> some free time. Uh, yeah, so oftentimes... <laughs> I learned to carry a book or have something that I could do during that time. And uh, so my dad was always somebody who talked to people about all kinds of things. And then when I was in elementary school and, and middle school, um, I was overweight and um, a, an awkward Mennonite kid in a public school. And so I got picked on a lot and got teased a lot and got made fun of. And um, in about the seventh or eighth grade, I got rescued by a, a very popular uh, girl in the class who had to work with me in a math class. She was assigned to me to be my partner, so she had to hang out with me. And she kind of said, hey, you're not as bad as people say you are. And so she kind of rescued me and stood up for me. And that, that experience, though, ended up getting me to be very, because she, she made, she made, because I was her friend, I became much more popular. But I had this, this. Um, I built up this this concern that other people were going to hurt me again, and so I didn't trust people. So I thought I need to get dirt on information on people, and so I started listening to people's stories. I started asking them questions, not because I really cared, but because I could get dirt on them, to <laughs> uh, to to use against them if I needed to. But what that did, and I think the Lord redeemed it um, eventually, was that it got me to know how to listen to people and how to talk to people and how to ask them about their personal lives. And so by the time then I got to Rosedale, I said, ah, I, I really want to do psychology. I really want to go into counseling. Hmm. And um, my, my now wife, uh, I was interested in her, and she said, you know, I, I really, I'd really love to date you, but, but uh, you should go to counseling first. And so... I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And so uh, it worked out really well. I, I saw a counselor there. And um, so I asked him, do you think I should go into psychology? And he said, ah, you're going to just waste a lot of time and money. You can do this without going to, to school. And so I debated a little bit and still decided, you know, I'm going to try it. So I, <laughs> I, um, I'll never forget uh, one day I was sitting there working with my dad, painting the corn crib, actually. And, and I said, hey, dad, I, you know, I think I really want to go to college and um, didn't know what it, I didn't, I didn't know what he would say. And he said, you know what, you should go in and call. And so I went in and called, I think about it now, I, I called Cedarville and they accepted me, or they, they sent 
you know, it was pre-internet day, so they had to send yeah. me and they had to send me a packet of information. I got accepted mm-hmm. like two weeks before school started. Oh wow! Never, had never seen the place. They had no room for me. They they accepted more students than they had rooms for because they figured people would drop out. Okay. So this is how I met Stan Paulette from from uh, Manitoba. Um, he we ended up in the same lobby together as students who didn't have rooms until people okay. dropped out, and they they came to us and they said, hey, you know would you two mind rooming together? And we turned out it was two Mennonite kids. And so it was a nice match for us. Mm-hmm. And um, so we both were psych majors. And so it was really cool. We got to have classes together. And uh, that's, that's when I really got the bug. And that's when I decided I wanted to really complete uh, and, and get licensed as a, as a therapist. And so then okay. uh, that's, that's when I went off and got my master's degree um, at the University of Dayton. Did you go right from? Right I did. From your, okay, yeah. Yeah, I went straight straight in. Um, I, in some ways, I, I I wish I wouldn't have. In some ways, I wish I would have had. I, I realize this is what I love listening to your your podcast. I I do think there's something about having life experience that makes schooling different. I mean, there's some advantage to going right away. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but. I, so so I, I sat, I, then I did therapy with my master's degree for three years, and then I decided to go back to complete my education with my doctorate. And, but, but then I had already worked for three years, and so then the stuff I was learning in class, it'd be like, one of your guests actually said this. I was like, man, that, that's really good in textbooks, but that doesn't work in the real world. And <laughs> it, it, you, you, you just have a different, different feel by that time, which just gives you a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But, you know, and, and then the other thing that I will say, I would say that I was, when I first became a counselor, I was much more um, committed to being a technical counselor. And so I wanted to do all the right things. I wanted to have the right techniques. I wanted to do it right. And then probably, um, I don't know, I, I had a, a really tragic story where a, a young couple lost a child. Mm. And um, I, it really helped me see in some of those situations, there's not much you can do. There's not, you, you can have the greatest techniques in the world, hmm. but in the middle of someone's grief, it, it, there's, a, there's a part of therapy that has to be person to person and has to be relationship to relationship. And, and that's when I really begin to see that you can be a great skilled therapist and counselor, but if you can't also make the relationship um, work, then, then it's not going to work. And so that really set me in this whole long search for how in the world do you connect with people quickly that you can um, get them to trust you quickly and get them to tell their story to you. And then how do I, as a counselor, get comfortable setting in their pain so that I, I can be comfortable to be with them in their pain? And so it really helped me change my focus from being, the, I, I, I would argue now, I'm not the best technician. In counseling, we, we talk all the time about how therapy is two things. It's the relationship and then it's the techniques. I don't want to go down too long of a rabbit trail here, but, but uh, when, when research looks at what makes people change in, in counseling, um, 40% is the person themselves which sometimes okay. I think, man, I'm doing a job where 40% of my success depends on somebody else, which for somebody who likes to be in control, that's not fun. 
but 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 then forty percent is the is the person who's seeing you. Thirty percent is your ability to build a relationship with them. And I'm thinking thirty hmm. percent is the relationship. Fifteen percent is the skill that you have to use the techniques. And I, was, I, I got me thinking about that. Oh, fifteen oh, percent. The other fifteen percent is the the client's belief that you can do magic in their life. It's it's the placebo effect or your ability to instill hope in them. And I'm thinking, wow, my job depends on my ability to have a relationship with somebody, my ability to make them feel like I can give them hope. That's that's almost half of what I'm going to do. So why am I wasting all my time? This sounds really bad. Why am I wasting all my time trying to to hone these skills when I really need to develop the relationship skills? And so I would say that I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how is it that we get people to trust us and how do we how do we, how does a person present in such a way that people can learn to trust you quickly because really if you have to i'm way i'm sorry i'm way deep here but um, no that's great yeah if if you can part of therapy is getting people to trust you enough that you can get them to do really hard things hmm. to make them better and, and without that relationship, you can't do it. And so sometimes I say that to, to my classes, that therapy is almost like a, um, it's like a relationship in a box because it's not a real relationship because you only see this person once or twice a week in an office. Right. But, but yet you get the intimacy of a real relationship for a short period of time. It's, yeah. It, and yeah. that way it's a, strange, it's a strange relationship. Yeah. Oh, I was going to ask as you were talking about the, I mean, trying to, to find the balance between relationship or technique, or I think that I have that right is how you were saying yeah. it. Is there, is there a technique to, to building a relationship? Like, <laughs> is that a skill that needs to be learned too? Or how does that so, work with it? So yes, there is. And, and so, um, my my kind of in, so I almost so there's three things I almost got into two besides psychology and one was biology, and the other was teaching history, and so there's enough of me that that's an investigator that likes to figure out the rules, and so there is techniques and skills that you can learn to develop a relationship. I mean, some of it's some of it comes by nature, and you have to have a certain. Per, I think it's easier for some people than others to figure okay, that yeah. out. Um, but, but, you, but there are skills that you can learn. Um, it's, it's, it's how you present. It's, it's, um, it's your ability to be, to be empathetic, but also to be, um, open and see the, the problem with all of them is that they're, they're really subtle skills yeah. that, that are, that are, that are so soft. It's hard to pick up, um, not, not to embarrass you, but one of the things that I've appreciated about listening to you is the way that you ask questions and the openness in which you do that. That's what attracted me to, to that style. You, you have a very therapeutic style in that way, um, in, in, those, in the way that you draw people out. It's, it's been fascinating to listen to it in that way. But how do you teach those skills? That's, that's I think... I think you get better with practice. I would mm. say that's certainly true for me. Um, one of the interesting things that research has found is that it generally takes guys a little bit longer, male therapists a little bit longer than female therapists to develop those skills. Yeah, and and so 
And, and, and again, that may be some, some difference between how men and women relate because up until about 22, both guys and girls will say that they prefer telling their problems to, guy, to girls than guys. Guys only become as, as equally thought of as a friend to disclose things to at about the age of 22 or 23. So, okay. and, and you know, the, the old saying is that guys talk to each other shoulder to shoulder versus face to face. That, right, yeah. that, and so I don't know if that plays a role in it or, or what it is. But um, so, so going back to your question, which I went in all kinds of rabbit trails on. <laughs> uh, yes, there is skills to, to do. And, and so it's, a lot of times it's learning to to withhold some of the things you want to say right away to to again encourage that person to be present and to be there with you and and uh, as one of my friends says you want the client the, the the person in therapy to know that you that you get them you want them to know that you know what they're saying uh, yeah. and and that's hard especially when you want to talk a lot um, and so therapy, a lot of times, is learning more about what not to say or, or to not talk too quickly. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask how much of that is, is just listening. <laughs> and, and even like uh, you, you talked about that, that I'm good at drawing people out. I don't, I don't know what that is. But, but um, yeah, I just I try to be curious and listen. So I don't know if that, if that is part of, of therapy, too, of, of... Absolutely right. You, 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 it is, it is a, I mean, I don't know how to say that other, it's, it's an approach to relationships. It's a, it's a, um, a quiet curiosity that, that you have to go in with. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So were you, were you, you, you kind of, we kind of got into this, I think, where you were talking about, um, you were realizing who you were as a therapist, maybe, and you needed to, to, keep developing and that relationship side of things. I, I think I was hearing you say that. Yes. So was this, was this kind of, did this have to do then where, where you went back to, to school after three years of, of doing therapy and it, was it a PhD that you were going for? Or? It was, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually have what's called a PsyD, which is the equivalent of an okay. MD in medicine. So it's a, it's, oh, a pra okay. it's a practicing doctorate where you're actually going to be a practitioner. So. Um, okay. for, so you don't do as much research in grad school, which was, which was fine. Cause I didn't really want to do okay. research. The, so in my program, we only had to do one research project, which is my, my, my research, my dissertation was really one of my, one of my professors had grown up in as a, as a practicing Catholic. And so she was fascinated about do children confuse God and Santa? And so she, when, she, when she discovered that I didn't believe in Santa as a child ever, she said, you're the person that has to do this research. And so, uh, so I agreed because I'm thinking, I don't know what else to do research on. So we went and interviewed um, Catholic school children about that, that believed in God. And then we they followed them until they no longer and believed in God and Santa. And then we, we watched as their belief in Santa uh, went away when they discovered that Santa wasn't real. And then we measured, does their belief in God disappear as well during that time? Okay. Um, Interesting. And what we found out was that it did take a, an ins statistically insignificant dip uh, around the time they discovered that Santa wasn't real. And then it went back up again. Um, okay. 
you know, it was it was fascinating interviewing hundreds of children about their belief in God and Santa. And um, some children took it really well, and they said, you know, I feel I feel privileged that I now have this kind of adult skills. And others did really take that 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 their parents lied to them, and that kind of hurt them that their parents lied. Some of that I discovered depended on how much. I, Again, not growing up believing in Santa, some parents go way overboard convincing their oh, children yeah. that Santa's real. You know, they put foot, footprints in the roof and make noise well. and all kinds <laughs> of that. My, my favorite story from that time, and then I'll get back to your question, uh, was a little girl said, I was asking her about how in the world does, she was saying that, that Santa and God know each other. And so I was asking her to explain that relationship. And so she said, well, really what happens is you pray to Jesus and then Jesus takes your request to God and then God contacts Santa who then answers your prayers and delivers your your answers to prayer that way and so I always said that was the uh, that was a different view of the of the Trinity it was God the Father <laughs> God the Son and Santa Claus I you know I don't know but 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 but, but, but she had a very interesting view um what were you asking me? Oh, so yeah, so when I went back, um, that's, that's when I really realized that I needed to, to, to gain some additional skills. Although I will say that grad school probably focuses too much on, this, on the skills and not enough on the relationship. Um, okay. So, and, 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 and this is the big debate in the field today, and this is also what I find fascinating when I go to, to places like uh, whispering hope or, or, you know, all the other places like that. How much of it is learning to do the relationship and how much is learning the skills? I do think you need both. Um, but I do think it's possible to be a really good counselor if you have a little bit of training on the techniques, but you really know how to relate to people hmm. and, and you can figure out what you're doing. I mean, it's certainly something you can pick up on. I do think sometimes people that don't have some of the skills, some of the techniques, uh, sometimes get swayed away, particularly by, by, by people that have personality disorders or have some more severe disorders. I think sometimes that can make a difference. But uh, for a lot of other things, I think um, you can gain a lot just through experience and having the right okay. person, personality and the right personal skills. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So, yeah, maybe going back to, to your schooling then. Um, so you went for your PhD, and were you planning to, to get into teaching after that, or did it kind of did that kind of happen? That's a, that's a great question. Own after that, or yeah. So so um, while I was in grad school and getting my doctorate, there was a number of things I said I would never do. A, I would never let anybody work under my license because. If you let somebody work under your license, if they do something wrong and and um, they get sued or you get you get sued if they do something illegal, mm -hmm. you lose your license. You can go to jail. It's 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 as if it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it's as if they're working as you. It's it, it's quite a right. I, I, it made me appreciate that we are God's ambassadors, and I'm thinking, wow, God, you you <laughs> you, you you give us way too much responsibility. <laughs> Um, and so I vowed I would never do that. And then I came to Pennsylvania here and started working for Philhaven. And I soon had about 60 people working with my license. My friend and I at the time used to joke that we'd share prison cells together, but neither one of us ever ended up in prison for what people did. But so, 
so I, 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 I also said I wasn't ever going to teach psychology or ever be a teacher. So, <laughs> so I got out here to Pennsylvania and um, I got a call from, from a Messiah and they said, hey, we're looking for somebody to do an adjunct. Would you be willing to, to teach one class? So I thought, sure, I'll teach. I'll teach a class. I I, I like talking and the like um, teaching. Taught a lot of Sunday school and stuff, and so I went to mm-hmm. teach that class, and I fell in love with teaching that oh, first okay. time. It was it was crazy. I I I came back after teaching the first week and told my wife, "Wow, teaching is really fun." Um, mm-hmm. And so then they asked me the next semester, and so they asked me. I taught I taught one class for. About four years, I guess it was, and then okay. uh, then a then a one year position came open, and so I applied for that and got that, and then a permanent position came open, and so then I made that transition in the early two thousands from doing okay. therapy full time to teaching full time, and then kind of slowly slowly weaned back on counseling as as time went on. But I I had no no thoughts about teaching when I was in grad school. Okay, well. And uh, yeah, you've been doing it pretty much full time. Would you would you say then since since, since, since two thousand and one, I've been teaching full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I guess one uh, one question that I thought of, and I don't I don't know if uh, there would be a better time later on to ask this, but I guess I would now. I've uh, when you brought up that that story of of your project that you did on asking um, children about their experience with God and, and Santa Claus. Um, you talked, you said, you mentioned something that I've heard other times with, with studies and things like that in psychology. And that's that you, you follow people or you, you, uh, you follow them until they um, stop believing in Santa or whatever yes, it was. Yes. And I've heard that other times with studies that they follow people for a number of number of years or or however long it is so i I was like i've often been curious technically how do you actually do that and how do you how do you follow up with people and uh and uh, follow up with those studies so it's a mess by the way i'll just okay the the easy answer (laughs) no it's not so so basically what you have to do is you basically get permission from in this case the parents and you say Mm -hmm. hey a year from now we're going to come back and we're going to interview your child again and then okay. a year after that, we're going to interview them again. And so, so we did it over a four-year period where we went back and interviewed them uh, to okay. see what they are. There's the famous, I just read, I just saw in the paper, I think it was yesterday I saw this. I think the study is, I think it's called Up. He produces a film. He, he has been following people, I forget, 1960s or 1950s. Every seven years, he goes back and interviews him. He just died, the guy that's been doing this research. And so it, oh. it's created this whole, like, who's going to continue with these people? Of course, many people in his study are also very old, and a number of them died now. I wish I could remember the exact name of it. But every seven years, he goes back. That, that is probably the longest longitudinal study that, that, you, that I've ever heard of. Okay. Well. When, when you do them, you often will lose some people. Some people will just okay. disappear. I will say this: in the age of the internet, it's it's easier to track down people. Now you're still going to get people who say, "I'm done with this study. What are you bothering me for again? I'm not going to okay, participate yeah. anymore." Um, but but some of those some of those longitudinal researchers, they know their their participants in their studies so well because they've been with them for so many years. Wallerstein yeah. is another researcher who's been following children from divorced homes since the 1980s. 
And you know, okay. I, I, I'm assuming that that her subjects in her study know her very well, and she knows them very well because yeah. she goes and interviews them every. I, th- I think she does it every two years. Uh, but okay. some of those, I mean, the '80s are what 1980. How many years ago? Wow, was that 40 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, so, so that's a long time to to follow yeah. up with somebody. You know, you you've watched them grow up. Yeah. So, well, some of those those studies that have been going on for such a long time, will they publish ongoing kind they, of the results that they find in things? Great, great, okay. great question. Yes. You, 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 you will publish every so often. You'll say this is where they are in their 30s. Like Wallerstein actually came out with where she followed. Most of her participants were in their 30s when she wrote a book on that. And so then she's written other books. In. I mean, the one thing that I will say, it's not a project you want to do when you're, it's your dissertation because then you, yeah. you can't graduate until you publish something or, or complete yeah. something. And so, so that, which is why a lot of people, going back to your, it, it's an excellent question, a lot of people don't want to do that, those kinds of studies, because it is harder to break them up and figure out where do I, where do I publish and what do I publish at, at set points along the way. Is that, a, is that seen as one of the, the best ways to, to research in the psychological field? or what, I mean, maybe this, maybe this is getting into some of the, the no, field no, of that, psychology. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. It, so so there's, there's pluses and minuses both ways. So, so one of the things that you can, you can kind of control for on longitudinal studies is it, for that generational effect. So, you know, you, can also, oh, yeah. you could also do the same thing where you're going to look at 20-year-olds and 40-year-olds. But I would argue that 20-year-olds had a lot different experiences than 40-year-olds. When, right. when, when, yeah. when I look at my children, we raised, I raised my children a lot different than by I was raised. And so... Mm-hmm. Was was the difference between when when I was forty and they were twenty? I, I would be older than that than them. But you know, if they were, you were looking at me at fifty and looking at them at twenty, some of the differences would be age, but some of the difference would also be generational. That longitudinal work, you don't have to deal with that. The problem right. is, it just takes so long to find out the answers. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and and generally, we don't have that kind of patience. Um, but but it is. There's some really, it's really a nice way to do it. It just is hard to do. Um, yeah. So would the other, one of the other ways to do things would be to kind of get together a group of people that would meet a certain criteria and then, and then do research on, on that group. Is that another? That, that's what you do. do. So, so okay. one of the things that they like to do is control for certain factors. So they'll take, they'll take 20 year olds and, and then they'll control for, um, parental marital status where they'll hmm. they'll they'll you know they'll they'll make sure that, that they all match in some ways to make sure that it's not the impact of divorce or separation and and then try to get to those things and so you try to get these pure groups that are just one way versus another mm-hmm. way um right you know one of the things that i think is fascinating around this is one of the things that, that researchers talk about a lot in the field right now is that it takes it takes children longer to grow up that 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 in some ways, um, tw- twenty today is thirty when I was growing up. And, or okay. sorry, the other way around. Thirty was right. th- thirty <laughs> today is twenty when I was growing up. And and I think about this a lot. I think about this even when my own. I, I'm so much more involved. I have four, we my wife and I have four boys, and I'm so much more involved in their lives, than I than my parents were when when I mm-hmm. left home. You know, I I called my parents. You know, once a week, maybe once every two weeks, and 
but but you know we also didn't have the technology to be yeah. able to have so much conversations with them and also the, there was a different kind of friendship that I had with my parents or lack thereof than I feel like I have with my children now maybe they feel okay. the same way about me but but <laughs> but but it feels like there's a different relational way that I relate to my children and they relate to me than I related mm. to my my parents, which has me really curious to see how you all relate to your children. And, and what will that style be? Will you be as friendly as we were with you? Because one of the things that, that research shows is that we, we just like our children differently and you like us differently than my generation liked our parents and they liked us. There's, there's a much more of a friendship and much less of authoritarian approach even though that authoritarian approach is still there, and I would argue even more so in kind of Anabaptist circles, although I yeah. would argue that even in Anabaptist circles, there's been a softening of the parental role that they've played in their children's lives. Okay. Um, which, which, so this gets in that whole longitudinal stuff because I think there's a difference in how we raised the next generation than we were raised. And I, and I also yeah. think that all the safety things have has made this generation, your generation, just much more aware of things. And it's nicer. I mean, it's it's better to have your child in a car seat than going through a windshield. And I'm not saying there's anything yeah. wrong, wrong with you know. I just remember the when we were growing up, the the, the seatbelt was your parents stuck your their hands out when they were going to a stop, and you know that was supposed to keep you from hitting the front of the car. But 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 I think you your generation also grew up with a lot more safety concerns in place there was a lot more concerns mm -hmm. about things and and i think that shows up as well uh i th mm -hmm. i thought about this in COVID, and man we're way off the rabbit trail <laughs> but 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 it felt like i i was struck by the older people even the my par parents generation cared less about COVID than mm. than my that my children did and i'm like my, my parents are much more at have many more risk factors of dying of right, COVID yeah. than the other way but but, and, I, and I think in some ways it's a different approach to life that the older, mm. my parents' generation were like, yeah, you could die from things, but that's the way life is. Where yeah. each generation we've said, oh, there's more safety things. We, we, we don't have to die. I mean, it's, it's not true. We do have to die. But, but, yeah. but we've taken increasing safety concerns. And, and again, I'm not saying those are bad, but it just produces different people psychologically. Interesting. How much of that, uh, just thinking about the whole, how we approach safety and that kind of thing, how much of it, how much of that just comes from our access to information that we, that keeps growing as, as time goes on? Like we think about how easy it is to, to learn things now compared to 20 or especially 40 years ago. Like how does that, does that play in just how, how aware we are of, of what, I mean, I can, in 10 minutes, I can learn a whole bunch about <laughs> what COVID could do and what, what are some of the ways to, to mitigate it and that kind of thing. And that would have been a lot, a lot harder to do um, before the internet and that kind of thing. Do you think that plays in at all to, to the generations? And Absolutely. Into, yeah. yeah. But just, just going back to that, um, I also think with, with the internet today, you can find other people who have the same concerns and also form support groups. So, so mm -hmm. you know, there's a big debate. Is infertility higher today than it was a generation ago? And, right. and it appears to be not much different. 
But I think I think the reason we think it is is because we a we talk about it a lot more, which I'm okay with. But mm-hmm. B, we can form support groups and we're much more open about it. And so we yeah. and now on social media, you can know not everybody who has infertility problems, but you soon find out a lot of things. And and sometimes you walk through someone's infertility journey with them through social media. And so and yeah. so and so we just. Going back to your point, we can find out information by Googling something you can get more hits and more th- cases. It can scare the living daylights out of you because you can yeah. read a hundred things that you should be afraid of that makes you never want to leave your house. Um, mm-hmm. And and certainly that plays a role in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating to think about. Um, I was trying to think kind of how we got there, but I think we were kind of getting into the, maybe I was going to ask you a little bit about, yeah, psychology. And um, so maybe I'll ask it this way. What, when you're asked in a to, to just in a in a couple minutes describe what psychology is or what what the field of the study of psychology is is trying to figure out or help with, yeah, how would you how would you kind of summarize or describe that? Yeah, you know, um, psychology has um, I would say fragmented into many different subfields today. So so generally now the 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 short definition of psychology it's the study of human behavior and thought. Uh, okay. it, during the, during the nineteen the nineteen twenties to the nineteen sixties, it, it decided it wanted to be really objective, like physics. I, I, one of the things I say in in my teaching the history of psychology, we have physics envy. We we've wanted to be physicists for about sixty years, and so mm-hmm. basically, we in psychology we stayed about thirty to fifty years behind physics for many years. And so for a while, they said, we need to be as objective as physics. And then some people said, come on, we, we can't be. This is a soft mm-hmm. science rather than a hard science. And so yeah. so the, the thinking was that you should be able to to prove everything through research or experiment. And that's it. And that was the only way to be able to say something for sure. Yes. And so we got yeah. in this crazy part during the 40s and 50s and 60s where if you couldn't see it, you couldn't be a part of psychology. So everything had to be behavioral. And so th- okay. there was people who said, we don't know if pe- we, it's not that we don't think people can think, but we can't see it. So therefore it's illegitimate to be studied in psychology. And, okay. and then in the 1960s, people started saying, that's insane. People, people think all the time. If we, if, we, if we don't really consider thinking, then what's the point of the field? It's just an artificial field that doesn't mean anything. So, so that really brought in this whole idea about thinking again. And so now you have, there, there, are, there are psychologists who do way different things than I do. There's developmental psychologists who study children's development. There is IO psychologists who work with business. There's, there's, there's a whole field of psychology that's called uh, IO, uh, shoot, what do they call it? Human factors design, where, where psychologists work with engineers to, to create like things that, that will match your hand and will, will match the way people think in all sorts of things. In some ways, sometimes oh. I wish I would have gone into that, but I'm like, nah, I care too much about physical or emotional problems. But, but so that's a whole, that's a whole side of, of psychology. Then you have these researchers who just look at simple things. Um, one of the big rages right now is looking at how our minds affect us physically and how we approach the world. Mm. 
just throw out two examples. Um, researchers have discovered, this is, this is blows my mind, but when you, when you um, forgive someone of, of a, a thing they've hurt you with, you can actually physically jump higher. So, so, yes. So this is crazy. It's not by much. It's like by, by tenths of an inch. So they've had people come in the lab and they've had them jump, you know, like, like basketball (laughs) players or football players and, and put their hands up and jump and measure how high they could jump. And, and what they discovered is when you make someone aware of something they haven't forgiven and you have them jump, and then you have them go through a process where you help them to forgive the person, they literally jump higher. And, wow. and the other thing is also true. When you have a secret that, that is, is very burdensome to you, you're carrying a secret that I, I find the, the research on, on secrets crazy fascinating um, mm. because when you have a secret, it gets weighty and it feels weighty on you. And they actually found that people, when they have a, a secret that they want to tell people, like an affair or something they've done wrong, usually mm-hmm. some kind of um, sinful behavior, that when you have them estimate how steep a hill is, they'll overestimate how heavy it is. Because, because we, we believe it's because the weight of that psychological weight, because we also know, that when you when you put a backpack on someone's back, like 50 pounds, and then you have them look at a hill and you take the backpack off, they also estimate that the hill is steeper when you have a backpack of 50 pounds on you. Then, oh, okay. So, so one of the things that so it has that a similar fi- effect is what it has a similar effect if uh, like holding a secret or something like that as as having a pack on your back. It's exactly the same thing, isn't that? I is, see. Isn't well. that? In my view, that get, that's when it gets really cool because it's like wow scriptures have something to say about that 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 you, yeah. that you really do feel that weight and then when you forgive you feel this release and you feel um anyway so so there are there are researchers who do i'm like man that's minutia what are you studying why are you studying that for 40 years <laughs> but some people really care about those kinds of things so so mm-hmm. so i would say that the field of psychology today has grown so large that there are psychologists out there that I don't even know. I couldn't even talk to them because they have their language is so different than mine. Okay. Yeah. And so in some ways I wonder, and there's debate in the field, are we really one field? Or are we really a bunch of fields? Hmm. Uh, because there's also social psychologists look at how, how groups affect people. It's social psychology and sociology get really close together. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and looking at those things. And so, then, then there's the forensic psychology, which is looking at criminal behavior. This is these are the people that make it in television crime shows, which I, I don't I don't really get into that whole area. But that's a whole fascinating field for. I mean, I'm always amazed at how many students that I get their their freshman year, and that's what they want to go into. You know, if they watch some kind of CSI or some kind of television show, and they think that's what they're going to be doing. I I keep telling them, you realize. You're going to be doing grunt work that's not going to look anything like those people on television are doing. But, but, but isn't that? I think that's that's probably the first uh, the goal of the first year of any program in in college or university is to 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 break all your misconceptions of what the field is. It's true. It's true. And so that's right now. That's the big one that we have to break. Is that no? You're not going to be some person that's going to follow you around and you're going to solve <laughs> crimes. That's not what you're going to be doing. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I mean, 
maybe you've been kind of mentioning this along with the fields, but kind of, and maybe you, this is thinking about, since there are so many different types of psychologists, this is maybe this question can be directed at you or, or um, psychologists like you. But what are what are some of the key problems that that you're trying to solve um, and and help people out with that kind of thing? Yeah, I'll stick with my subfield at least for now, and then we could branch out if we want to. Um, so, in counseling, the, 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 of course, the big goal is to figure out <clears throat> how can you. How can you help people resolve the pains in their life or issues in their life that are causing them to, to be burdened by anxiety, depression, or relational problems, or obsessional compulsions, or, 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 or any of those things? Hmm. And one of the things that, that I find fascinating, going back to a generational change, is that um, many times to overcome anxiety overcome things like obsessive compulsive disorder you have to do things that make you uncomfortable and so one of the th harder things that i find with the with a with each younger generation is their the unwillingness to be uncomfortable enough to get better and so hmm. it's it's sometimes trying to help people to see that that to get better sometimes you have to get worse before or or be uncomfortable for example one of the one of the best ways to overcome any fear you have is to face that fear, and so um, that's just really hard. It's really hard to convince people. For example, let's say that you have obsessive compulsive disorder and you're afraid to get germs on your hands. Mm. One of the things that you have to do is to tell people, okay, we're going to do something that's called exposure response prevention. We're going to have you purposely get your hands dirty. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, a number of years ago now, I had this, she was probably six or seven year old girl come to me, her mom brought her because she, her her face was chapped. Her, her cheeks were just red with chap because she washed her face so much. Oh well. When, when we talk to each other, we sometimes spit, spit comes out of our mouth. And so that really started getting to her. This was pre-COVID, which I can't eat even worse than COVID, I suppose, but. But yeah. but uh, she she would be so afraid that people would spit on her that she would just continually wash her face. And it was a problem at school because she'd often leave her classroom to go wash her face. And, and again, her cheeks were just chapped from washing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I told her and I told her mom, you know, we're going to have to get you so that we can have people actually. I, I, I said in my head, I just can't have people spit on this little girl. So what are we going to do? And I said, okay, who, who has the safest spit in your family? And she said, well, it would be my mom, and then it would be my dad, and then it would be my brother. His, his spit is the most dangerous. And so I said, okay, what we're going to do, and worked with the parents about this because a seven-year-old, it's really hard, is that we're going to have your mom lick both of your cheeks, and then we're going to have you go first for 30 minutes before you wash your, your cheeks, and then an hour, and then two hours, and then three hours. And then when you get really good with that, we're going to have your dad lick your cheeks. And then we're going to have your dirty little brother over here. He's going to lick your cheeks. Um, and so she went through that at, over a series of weeks. Wow. And she stopped washing her face in the end. But, but it's that exposure and response prevention. Because <laughs> basically, when, when, you do, when you do what you're afraid of and you don't die or whatever we fear is going to happen, right. we can overcome our fears. What's really hard is sometimes it's hard to face our fears, particularly when they're in our heads more than they are in real life. <laughs> um, 
and, and, and part of therapy is helping feel people, getting people to feel safe enough to face those fears because you just can't throw people out there and say, you know, go, go face what you're afraid of because that's really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's almost impossible to do. I mean, I, I think about, this is a story I use a lot. Growing up on the farm, we were often working on roofs and I'm not a big fan of heights. And it, I always remember when you'd first be on the roof after not being there for a while, um, you, you would feel uncomfortable. And then after the after a week of painting the roof or whatever, fixing it, you could walk around and jump around and do all kinds of things. And yeah. and that's, that's kind of the way it is with all of our fears, um, hmm. which which seems like a dirty little secret when you tell people that probably the probably the best way to to get overcome your fears is to is to face them and get through them. Um, probably the hardest part for me as a therapist because it changed so much since I got in the field was people that had trauma like PTSD, uh, post traumatic stress disorder. When when I got in the field in the 1980s, we were taught you never you never have people who um, have PTSD face their fears. And now the treatment approach is you, you have them face their fears in these controlled okay. conditions, which I'll have to say this. It's still hard for me because it's so against what we were taught when I was in grad school. But the, the, the Veterans Administration here in the U.S. has these machines that they're set up and they have these rooms that they can dial in any war that the U.S. has been in since I think it's the Vietnam War. And they have these guys that have PTSD and they have the smells and the sounds of those wars. And they put those guys in there with their therapist and have them relive that. And I'm like, to, to me as a therapist, that even seems cruel. But it's been found to be the most productive way to overcome PTSD. Really? Wow, I would not have known that. Yeah. Me neither until, until, until the field changed on me uh, in that way. And so one of the things, of course, you have to do is help people to change what they tell themselves. So let's say that you were... <laughs> In, in, a, in a situation such as an abuse situation or uh, in a rape situation is you really have to help those people with the cognitive beliefs that they tell, what do they tell themselves in their head? What thoughts do they have? You teach them kind of coping skills and then you have them relive parts of those scenes uh, since you're not mm -hmm. gonna actually redo that to them. Um, and that, and that's, that's been a really, but, that's been a real change for, for the field. And again, I think it's one of those techniques that you can learn that you wouldn't know intuitively that's what's going to help. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, the, this is a, a question that, that kind of came to me as, as you were talking about the, some of the different things that you help people with and, and that kind of thing. Do a lot of our problems and things that, that people deal with, is it come a lot from situations that people have been in in the past? Um, or are people, are people born with, with things that they struggle with and, and things that they have to work through as well? Or where, maybe, or yeah, how do you? Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop there, I guess. That, that, so I would say it's a little bit of both. Uh, okay. So the way the way I often tell people is that we here's here's my my summary of it. We are all born with certain predispositions. So, for example, I would say um, I was born uh, to be anxious. I, I was an anxious child. Um, 
I was a very shy child and just was frightened by everything. And, and I look at my brothers and sisters and my parents, and, and I would say that two of us in our family were, were much more anxious-based than the two other of us. There was four of us in my family. And so I would say that somebody like me would be predisposed to develop anxiety disorders. And also we, we know from other research that people like me are also more inclined to get depressed. Uh, they often go together, depression and anxiety. Okay. So, so here's, here's my thought. If, if somebody like me is born and then, then things happen to you that, that are hard, I'm more likely to develop disorders than somebody else who doesn't have that tendency to get there. Okay. But somebody else may have a tendency to struggle with anger and resentment. And so um, they, they have a whole different host of problems or potential problems. So if tragedy happens to them, they may struggle with bitter and anger and unforgiveness in their lives where somebody like me may not because that's not my temperamental first reaction to things. One of the things I okay. always say or often say to people my, when I'm teaching, I said, okay, when somebody gets mad at you and yells at you, do you rise, does something rise up inside of you and make you want to fight them or punch them? Or does something make you want to call, crawl into a ball and disappear and hope that they, they never talk to you again and you never have to face them? Or are you someplace in between? The people that want to rise up and punch they're not going to probably get anxious and depressed. They may have other problems right. in life. Okay. Um, and and what's, really, what's really fun when you have children is you get to see kind of those temperamental patterns developing early on. Um, I mean, if you really want to look like a good parent, just have really easy children. And, and, and <laughs> people will say, you're such a great parent. Look at your children. They're so well-behaved. And you've done nothing. And then you could be a great parent and have kids that just look at you and say no, just because that's who they are. And you could look like an awful parent. I'm not saying that you, there's no parenting skills involved. There is. But some of it's the luck of the draw of the personality of the children you get, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I guess going back to kind of the, the field of psychology and the, um, the things that, that you as psychologists do, are there, so you've talked about therapy a lot with, with what you do, are there other roles or um, jobs that, that uh, psychologists will find themselves in? Yep. So this goes back to business where, where there's uh, more and more psychologists going into business. And so one of the big areas that you're starting to see as well, which is, which is someplace somewhat related to therapy but different, is more and more HR jobs or how do you, how do you make, um, how do you resolve personal conflicts in a business setting? And, and so those kinds of jobs are really becoming more and more common where okay. psychologists are fitting into. Uh, the other place you will see them is going back to what I talked about before, which would be in the engineering field and that human factors engineering where they're going to be well, working with engineers to 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 address those kind of issues. Um, hmm. The the other thing that you're really starting to see, and I think this is this is the the changing kind of um, culture that we live in as well, is public policy. And so there's a lot of a lot of psychologists getting into public policy and and how particularly. Uh, when we think about this last summer and everything, in particular here in the states, but how how do you address race race issues and how do you address uh, conflict between ethnicities and immigration and all that? 
I'm amazed how many psychologists have gone into working with immigration and race relationships and relationships between the police and the public. That's a growing field for psychology to get into, which again, when I was in grad school, that field was very tiny, and that's really starting to become a, a, a bigger issue, which, which is, a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, brand, a relatively brand new field of looking at all those yeah. issues. What, uh, what do you think has led to, to psychology and psychologists having interest there? Is it because there's, there's more and more psychologists, and so they're, they're, they're able to find more things to to become involved with, or is it just an awareness that's raised for the role that they can play in, in helping people in different areas? Do you have any idea, like, as you've seen the field change, where what's led to, yeah. to the continued branching and growing of, of what's, what's done? So, so I would say it's a little bit of both. So, so for example, back in the 80s when I would have went to school, we did have a section in my social psych book on racism and and okay. kind of uh, race relations but it was a tiny little chapter towards the end of the book and then i think as society has been become more concerned about it and the number of psychologists you've hit on it there's just so many psychologists now and so it, it pushes you to find places to plug in and get jobs and so i think it's a yeah. right now i would say that those issues are, are really a kind of where we are as a society. And then also that there are psychologists who have that interest and want to say, mm -hmm. hey, this is what we know about this area. Let's, let's yeah. do that. And, when, and when, they, when there is interest in an area, then they'll start doing studies and then there'll be things to study. And so it kind That's of right. feedback, feedback loop that can, can keep growing in, in something like that, I guess. The, too. the other thing that I, I want to bring up here, the other big facet, and this goes back to what you just commented on, there's a, there's a whole wave of research right now on social media, which I, I, oh, yeah. I, I actually got a little bit into that. I'll talk about that too. But um, so right now, I mean, there are people studying social. In fact, I'm just uh, a, friend and a, a friend of mine, and, and we're, we're just starting to study this semester or next semester. Um, we're looking at why do we like what we like on, on Instagram? And so it has, the, the part that kind of has been fascinating to me, then I'll get to the bigger field, but is, so, so my friend who really is into research, a, a third friend of mine, and, and he, he really pushed uh, Julie and I who are looking at this. He said, okay, why do you guys like what you like on Instagram? And so I had to sit around for two weeks and think about every time I hit the button on like on Instagram, why am I liking this? <laughs> And, and you know what I realized? I have all kinds of rules that are in my head about what I like. And, and, and I would have never guessed my rules until I, had to, until I was forced to sit down and think, okay, why didn't I like that and why do I like this? <laughs> my, my series of rules are rather sophisticated, I realized, and way beyond what they should be for a crazy thing like Instagram. But, but uh, so, so we're curious about what we're looking at is is how, how do people make a decision to like what they like? And what I realize by looking at my own life, it's gonna be almost impossible to tell because sometimes you like things because they're your close friends. Sometimes you like things because you feel obligated to. Sometimes you like things because <laughs> you like some parts of it, but not others. There are some things I realize that I will never like when somebody posts it, no matter who it is. 
and so it's 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 very complicated about what we what we like uh-huh. and and so i realize that likes mean something so different for each person mm-hmm. and 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 they mean something different probably for the receiver than they do for the giver a lot of times but but mm-hmm. you know i'm not sure that's any different than when i give my wife flowers i don't think that what i mean for them to mean necessarily means the same thing to her they they it's humans we're, we're it's just hard to communicate and the little the little like button is is a fascinating one i mean instagram has been debating for a long time about getting rid of the like the heart button they did um i, I don't know if it was just a a can like a canadian trial or something like that but they did for a month or something so like i that. was going to ask you about that since i don't live in canada yeah. so i follow this fairly closely and they told me they were going to get rid of it in canada and australia i believe did they really get rid of it in, for a month in Canada? I think so. It was a couple of years ago now. I yes, think. that's but, what. It, but yeah, I remember that people talking about. Yeah, you can't like you can't like things on Instagram anymore. So 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 Canada. <laughs> but it didn't last Canada long, was so. a trial for Instagram. They were going to try yeah. it to see if it worked. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm not actually on Instagram. It was just other people talking about it that I knew about okay. it. Okay, it did happen. Yeah, interesting. But yeah, it, it was just a short thing. So, so one of the big things that's really come out in social media right now is the um, the devastation. It looks like impact on girls' mental health. Um, mm. One of the things in psychology, it's really hard to find a, a bunch of people to agree with things. But one of the things that has really gotten i i have almost seen every researcher agree that girls are more negatively impacted by social media than boys so what we've noticed what researchers have found is that starting in 2011 has there has been this sharp uptick in the rates of depression and anxiety among girls teen girls and that corresponds i forget was that the year that that cell phones was the iPhones came out something came out in 2011 and I forget what it is now okay the iPhone was 2007 but it would have taken a bit to get to get popular or to become common everyone had it yeah yeah so so that's probably what it was it's something to do with the iPhone and so and so 2011 um, I also was was that when was that when Facebook I don't know when Facebook really got popular yeah, I'm not sure. Or Instagram, I don't know if they would have been in there. I don't either. Yeah. So one of the things that they that they think is that girls do so much social comparison on social media that the mm. pressure for girls to get liked and to get noticed and for girls to spend um, just a great deal of time prepping their pictures to make sure they're perfect, to make sure that they look right, and the disappointment that they experience when they don't get the likes they're looking for hmm. uh, really seems to put pressure on girls in a way that it doesn't with guys. And, and hmm. one of the studies I was reading talks about, you know, um, guys tend to be gamers more than girls, although that's, there's some girls mm-hmm. out there that are gamers too. But they were, this researcher was saying, you know, in, in social media, in, in Instagram and now TikTok and, uh, and Snapchat, Facebook is kind of dead except for old people like me, but, but <laughs> which, which which you, you, you never win. You, you never can get enough likes or you never can feel like you have the perfect picture. But in a game, 
you can eventually, if you're good anyways, and, and eventually games generally, you play them long enough, you can be the champion, you can overcome, you can be right. really good. And so guys have this thing that they get into where they can become the winner in a way. But girls get in this game where they always seem to be behind and they never, there's always somebody who has more likes. There's always somebody who has cuter pictures. And, and so you're left here thinking, ah, oh, here am I, I'm, I'm so dumpy, I don't have any friends, I, I don't look great, I, I, I don't look as good as she, et cetera, et cetera. She always gets more likes. And, and I, we think that's why girls are struggling more with social media than boys. Interesting. Huh. Not that I have an answer for that. I, I, I don't know um, what the answer is. Back in 2000 and 2003, um, I did a I did a study where I uh, one of my friends connected me with a young Amish girl who who here in Lancaster area, and she gave me a list of her friends. She had. 361 friends on Facebook at the time as back when Facebook was a thing. And, and so, um, it allowed me then she allowed me then to, to, it was kind of creepy when I think about it from a non study point of view, but she allowed me to go through and look at all her friends and, and, and then kind of look at some of the things that they liked and where things were and what was going on around that. And it was, it was, it's interesting to think about. Um, and again, I, and when I say all this, remember that I have my Instagram account and I have a Facebook account, so it's not like I'm not in the world of social media. I certainly am. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 I but it got me thinking about Anabaptist culture and Glahasenheit mm-hmm. or however it's pronounced, and and how in the world do you put that kind of together with social media, which with a strong emphasis on the individual. And, and and how we experience I don't know it it's it's it, it's just a it's an interesting thing I think particularly for us as Anabaptists for who we've been and how we've looked at the self and how we've looked at the community and the the emphasis of the importance of the community over the individual now that's <laughs> rapidly changing in Anabaptist circles. Um, but but I was left thinking after that study. How 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 much does does social media promote individualism? And again, as I'm speaking all this, remember that I'm still part of the game, so it's not like I I've I've, <laughs> I've quit. I haven't. Um, but but that study made me really analyze. The one thing I hate about studying social media is it makes me think of my own social media patterns so much more deeply than I do when mm-hmm. I just randomly scroll the doom scrolling down through this screen, um, uh, just yeah. randomly <laughs> doing that. But, but at the same time, sorry, I'm kind of way off on a rabbit trail here. At the same time, social media is so Anabaptist. It's all about relationships. It's all about relationship building. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, Google Plus for a while was such a big thing in conservative Anabaptists. It was kind of the, it's certain, certain, subsets of Anabaptist culture conservative. It was kind of the, their form of, of Facebook or, or was it Google plus? What was the name of that? It wasn't Google plus. It, yeah, it was a Google plus. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. And, and, and that's kind of gone away because Google got rid of it. But, but, but I, but I love, I love part of social media for Anabaptist culture because it, it really does help you. My cats decided to join me. Hi there. 
Um, it, it really does add to community and it can really strengthen community. It's, it's such a double-edged mm -hmm. sword. It, it, it's it's yeah. a blessing and a curse in so many ways. Do, do you find that a lot with when you, when you study technology that, um, that a lot of, I mean, in a, probably a lot of things that there can be good things that come from it and there can be, be negatives, like from a psychological point of view, does that, is that often the case with, with things? It or? absolutely is, Partic I, particularly yeah. with technology, that which, which, which is yeah. why I think technology is so hard to know, kind of from a scriptural, spiritual point of view and a psychological point of view. What do we do with it? Because it is a blessing and a curse. Because, again, going back to some of the blessings that we find with social media is when you leave home, you're able to connect with your friends and family in a way that you never could when you didn't have yeah. social media. I think about this for, for missionaries. The sense of loneliness yeah. that they feel is so different today than it would have been mm. before because you can video chat your friends and your family where you would have never had yeah. letters from them you know, a generation ago. Um, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's such a blessing in that way. And I was thinking about with the, the community and you were, you were talking about how that, that can be lost in the ways that social media promotes individualism or um, and that kind of thing. But it can also be a way of connecting with people that, that you maybe wouldn't have. You were talking before about um, people finding each other that are struggling with infertility yep. or um, you name any kind of thing. And, and, um, and they're, you're, yeah, it's easier to, to find maybe a group or community to connect with than when you would be lonely or alone. And, um, without that so no yeah. <laughs> there's that's a perfect that's a perfect example of the support and 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 um just just the just that feeling of of connection you develop with people that you never would otherwise i i think about this every time i go on anabaptist perspective website and 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 kind mm -hmm. of look down through there and i think wow what a what i would have given in the 1980s to have that online world of support i i just love going on there because I, again, I feel like I'm back in my 20s when I'm on there, even though I'm not. But, but, but just all the people that are there and all the intellectual perspectives that you get and kind of all that, this, the sense of, wow, I'm not in this alone. There's many people out there with me in this mm -hmm. journey. It's, it's, it gets me excited and I'm not even really a part of that. I'm more of a, uh, of a, of a, a, a fringe person in that world. But, but uh, and, and, and I think, I suppose some people could see danger in that too, let's be honest. But, but but I, I also think it goes back to that support that you're talking about, like the infertility groups that just really help, can be really helpful there. Yeah, and again, just one of those things where, where there's positives and negatives to it. Um, yeah, you're, you're kind of, I'd, I'd uh, the reason I had some questions down here on, on uh, social media, and it, I think I'd come across on maybe your bio on the Messiah yeah. website that you've you've done some studies and things like that, and you were talking there about it. Some, well, maybe I'll ask this question: Where did your interest in in studying the the plain people, or uh, um, specifically the Amish, where did that come from, or how did you how did you get involved yep. in that? It really goes back to the two two things: um, my my time at, at Green Pastures and working with with Amish and, and Old Order Mennonites really got me back um, connected. You know, at one point, my parents, my grandparents, my great-great-grandparents in Canada would have been Amish uh, many, many years okay. ago. And so I, I would have had that, although 
that that didn't really get me interested in it until I really started working with them uh, out here. Okay. And then and then doing that study, the really that study with the the young lady uh, on, okay. on social media was really what got me back in that world in a major way. And um, mm-hmm. it just it just opened my eyes to a, 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 a I'll never forget. I I was working with this guy. And he was really struggling mental health wise when I was a therapist. And and uh, one of the really kind of cool things that happens in in older Mennonite communities now and Amish communities is when you have mental health uh, issues, it's not always cool for the people. Sometimes they don't like it, but you will have a support group. Your church will pull together a support group who will gather around you and kind of guide you through the process. And so one of the things that I learned really quickly when I was doing therapy with those those individuals was I saw their support group. Sometimes their support group would sit in therapy with me and was like, wow, this doesn't happen outside of the playing communities. And um, I'll never forget this, yes, this young guy I was working with. His support group decided that he couldn't manage his farm. And so while he was in the hospital with us, they worked together and they made a decision to sell his farm to somebody else. And they got him a new place and a new job. And, and one of the things that was fascinating for me was, and this is when I wish that I knew Dutch, I, I wish my parents would have taught it to me, because he, he would talk in Dutch and I, I didn't know the Dutch word, so I would often say, what's, what's the, what does it mean in English? And, and basically what he said, it's a Dutch word that means to give myself over to it or to, to surrender to it. And he, because he would always say, I, I, I haven't, given myself over to their decision. And, and it was fascinating me to, to, for, for me to, to watch somebody go through this, this process where he was learning to submit himself to the decision of the group. And that's like, I realized, oh, wow, that's, that's not the kind of anabaptism that I currently am in. And, and, and that's a different level of anabaptism than, than where I'm at. But that's a fascinating, both good and bad, in, in my view, because yeah. because it it it's in some ways it's the essence of what community should be, but it's not the essence that we like all that much in our world. Uh, and again, it has its problems. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but mm-hmm. but 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 that experience really got me fascinated. I was like, wow, this this is a, this is an element, both psychologically and spiritually, that I want to get to know. That I want to. That, that I want to learn more about and learn how does that both help and hurt people in, in how they function. And I must admit, having now been in this world at, at various levels for the last 10 or 15 years, it is both a plus and a minus. I, 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 I see people chafing at that, but I also see the great strength that comes with that. Um, I, I, I will say, one of the things that has really jumped out at me in, in working with people in, in that setting, when you get pushed to the side of those communities and you're off to the side and you don't quite fit in and you're not in the inn, it's a lonely world because, because yeah. you're not in this really tight group, but you're not actually able to be in the world because you look different and you act different and you don't really mm-hmm. belong there. And so you're, you're kind of get caught in this in-between world, which is a very, it's a very tough place to be. I'm not saying it's impossible to be there, but 
I've learned to appreciate the depth of the pain that could be in there when you're in that space mm -hmm. because it's almost like you're in no man's land between two worlds that you can't fit into either yeah. one. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating and really interesting to think about. Like, um, and yeah, growing up in, a, in, in part of a, a conservative Mennonite um, group myself and probably, I mean, there's very many different um, and types of, of even conservative Mennonites right. as, as um, we can talk about there. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about and, and, uh, and, and hear your, sp your perspective and from what you've, you've seen and worked with there. Did you have any more you wanted to say about uh, yeah, that or other research that you, that you have done that, that uh, you'd like to share? It's been, I'll just add this. It's been interesting to see the sudden openness to counseling in a way recently and the whole issue of abuse that has kind of exploded in the, in the plain circles and what to do with that abuse. I, I, I will say I didn't expect that to, to happen, and that's been a relatively new development. And... Uh, I don't know how that's all going to going to to shake out and what's going to happen. It's it's a. Hmm. It, it, I I I understand why it's both exciting and unsettling for some people in 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 those circles because it is so. A I feel good for the victims, and that they have more voice than they've had before but it will certainly change some of the things that are happening. I, I, I think this, this goes back to, in some ways, to technology, um, because I, I think that technology has allowed victims to hear of other victims who are out there, and I think, from my perspective, kind of, kind of a more outsider's perspective, I think that that has put pressure on the system in some ways and allowed a greater voice for victims simply because they know of each mm. other a lot more. Yeah. And I really think it's because of increased contact through texting, uh, support groups, mm. and internet access. The, the impact of internet on, on these issues that we've been talking about in, in, interspersed throughout the the evening here is fascinating to think about and just uh, hmm. again this is the good and bad about about um, texting and, and and calling and all the things that we can do today it's just but I think I really do think it's played a significant role in the the latest wave of of debate and discussion about abuse in plain circles and the answers are tough the answers are hard and how to address those um, becomes becomes difficult becomes hard it, but I, but I do think there's a, an increased openness to exploring them and to addressing them in multiple ways yeah yeah and uh, that's it's fascinating that that you connect that again to to yeah more connectivity and, uh, and being able to to find other people that are struggling with the same thing or people that are willing to help maybe too that to make that first that first contact or give someone the maybe given give someone someone's contact information or something that they can they can talk to and that can can open things up but 
yeah, that's fascinating. Also interesting to hear you say that that it's not an easy thing to deal with and um, and to 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 yeah. Exactly. I don't I don't have much more to say there, but yeah, it's fascinating. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, if you have more things to add here as we go, that's great. But maybe I'll uh, I'll pivot a little bit here to to asking if you have any advice that you came up with to share. Um, so maybe first of all, do you have any advice for anyone that's maybe thinking about about doing some studying in the field of psychology, thinking about uh, um, pursuing it as a maybe college or university or as a career of some kind? Um, do you have an advice looking back over your own career and uh, experience that, that you'd have to share with someone just starting sure. out? You know, uh, one of the things I will say, um, so when I got into the, when I got interested in the field in the 1980s, there was a lot of a, a lot of talk that time in the Christian, the broader Christian community about can you be Christian and be in psychology at the same time, and and that was a heavily debated topic and still debated topic, um, depending on what circles you are in, and 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 so one of one of my favorite authors of the time said that he he said I look at psychology, uh, he he called he, he said what Christians need to do with psychology is what he called spoiling the Egyptians and this was the the uh, the time when the children of Israel eventually left Egypt, um, basically what they did is they took all the gold and silver with them. The Egyptians were so glad to right, get rid of them. Yeah. They said, just take it, take it, take it. And his point was that that gold became part of the tabernacle, but it also became the golden calf. It became both of those things. Oh, yeah. And so... He, goes with our theme that we've been talking about tonight that that a lot of things bring good and bad <laughs> it's the common theme and so he he yeah. said your job as as a young student going into psychology is to not fall victim to making the golden calf but to find the gold and silver to make into the tabernacle and and the articles in the tabernacle and i would say it is tricky. It can get really tricky. There are certainly many people who get into psychology who lose faith, but I don't think you have to. I think I think part of it is you need a mentor. You need somebody who can guide you and who, who can walk with you and can help you. Not that they're going to dictate what you think all the time, but somebody that, that can be there when you begin to have doubts. Um, I, I will say one of the hard parts for me Probably the time I struggled the most as a young therapist was my first cases when I ran into where there was horrific abuse with children. And, and then I got to see that play out when they were teens. Uh, and I didn't really see them when they were children. I saw them more when they were teens at that in my job there. Mm. But the, it, it, I, I really struggled with God at the time. And I said, God, how is it that you can let really bad things happen to children so that when they're teenagers... And the young adults, they struggle to find you because of the abuse that they experienced when they were young, their inability to trust, their inability to know what love is like and to trust love. And that was really hard for me because it, it, it was like, I don't understand that. I don't, I, don't, I don't see, as from a human perspective, I couldn't find fairness in that. I couldn't find um, how that, that made any sense. And, and, and again, I eventually got to the point where I was able to say, okay, God's ways are higher than our ways. And we can't, I, I can't figure that out. Um, but, but, but that, I, I think that's where, that's where psychology is different than some other professions because it's so, 
so close to soul care. It's so close to, to ministry on some hand. It, it's a weird profession because, because um, particularly counseling, because you're using your personality to, to help people, which is which you don't need to do if you're building a house or even if you're a physician, but particularly <laughs> if you're in construction or if you know an engineer, um, you don't need to do that as much. But but you but you also are are so deep into people's concept of of life and concept of forgiveness and and bitterness and so many things that come so close to the spiritual life that that it. I think that's what scares people about the field so much is that it, it, it feels like where does, where does the profession leave off and where do you get into spiritual discipleship? Where do you get into those things? And, and, and so all that to say, I don't think that we need to, to be afraid of it. I do think we need to be cautious and I do think that we need we need a community where we can have those conversations. Um, hmm. I, I just had a young Anabaptist uh, student reach out to me, uh, was that two weeks ago? And she said, hey, I'm just getting started in psychology. I've heard about you. Could we occasionally talk about, about it? And I said, absolutely. I, 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 I love the idea of having, I'd, I'd love to see, going back to what you talked about, I'd love to see more support groups for, for young Anabaptists who are getting into the field to have some of the discussions that I think you need to have to get into the field and to kind of work through some of the things that may arise. But so all of that to say, I do, I do want to encourage people who are interested in it, do explore it. Um, and, 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 and again, no kind of going back to that golden calf and the articles in the tabernacle, psychology can, can be used Again, that's the theme that we've talked about. It can be used for good and bad. And so how do we use it for good? Because I think um, all truth is God's truth. And if we can find truth, we can take that and, 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 and um, <laughs> use it for, for God's purposes. Um, just it, ha- it has to be done with care. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I like that. And I like the analogy you bring out there of the, of the Egyptians. I... Um, hadn't thought of, or I've never heard that before. In any analogy of being able to take something that could be used for good or used for for evil, and uh, and using it for good, that's that's great. Maybe uh, for for anyone now, um, do you have advice for for just a regular person in regards to mental health or or other things involved with with psych? with psychology from your experience that you'd sure. like to share? I'll talk a little bit about it again from my subfield of, of uh, counseling. This goes back to some of the things we've talked about before. There is such value in sharing what you think are your worst secrets. Uh, so much of our depression and so much of our anxieties and so much of our, our separation from others is a fear that people will not accept us if they know certain things about us. And, mm-hmm. and what, what research shows over and over again is when you tell people your dirty secrets, which are not usually dirty because other people have them as well, not that they're not dirty, but, 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 they're, but, but generally people like us more when they know things about us mm-hmm. than when they don't. But, but we live in this 
this world that says if they know this about me, they're not going to really like me. They're they're gonna they're gonna find that I'm weak. They're gonna find that I'm that I that I have something wrong with me. And the relief that can come just by sharing this goes back to jumping higher, or, or feel, sorry, feeling that burden of of carrying a secret. Sometimes there's so much healing that comes in just sharing your secret. Now. I don't think you got to share your secrets with everybody. You got to use discretion. There's some people you don't want to share your secrets to because they're not trustworthy. But generally, there are people in your life that can help you carry that burden. I think about how, how, how you know, the scriptures sometimes seem confusing where they talk about each person should carry their own burden and we should share burdens with one another. It's different kinds of, you look at the Greek, it's different words there. But, but um, I, I, think, I think that's where you can you can share each other's burdens in a way that can ease our emotions. And again, you can't solve all of psychological problems that way, but I think in so many times that can be the case. And, and I will say this. <clears throat> One of the things that I think sometimes makes Anabaptist, sorry, I can't believe we're talking about Anabaptist culture so much here tonight, but, um, <laughs> so, but, but sometimes I think what happens in Anabaptist cultures is we do feel this pressure even more so than some other groups where we can't be weak, that we can't share weaknesses. And, and, and so our, our desire to live holy lives, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't live holy lives, but sometimes our desire to live holy lives forces us into living in a secret world where we're, we're not where we should be and we're not where we should be, or we have worries or we're depression or we're struggling with some area of, of sin or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so then we pull in versus kind of say, how can we, how can we reach out to other people? And so I do think sometimes we who've grown up in Anabaptist cultures sometimes find that harder to do, to, 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 to share um, with other people. That's not true with all of us. Some of us are just chatters, but, 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 but many of us find that way. Um, I also will say my, my friends find this crazy, uh, but, but, but I tell them my, I have never... I have never heard my parents say, I love you ever in my life. Do I think my parents love me? Absolutely. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. But, but they were that generation of, of Anabaptist parents who you just gush all over your children all the time that you love them. And so I do think, this is, this is where I think a change of generation. Your generation, my kid's generation, expects a lot more of that than we did from our parents. And hmm. which... Again, I don't think either way is right or wrong, but but sometimes I'm struck with that 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 the younger generation sometimes doesn't feel loved by my generation because they have a different expectation of how parenting should be, and it got and it changed on us. One of the things that I find fascinating uh, is the amount of uh, of injuries that people talk about from their fathers. And I'm not saying that there aren't fathers out there that have injured their children. They have in Anabaptist culture and outside of Anabaptist culture. But some of that is the change in expectations, which again, I have to say, I am excited to see your generation of fathers and the the general softerness in which you approach your children hmm. than, my, than even my generation did with our children. Um, that excites me uh, coming from my perspective. But I think, I think how, how, we, how we demonstrate love um, 
can also help our children in the long run when it comes to to their psychological health. At the same time, I also see parents today in counseling who are so afraid to do anything with their children for fear that their children are going to be in therapy talking about them in 25 years. Hmm. And so and so part of me hmm. I'm working with two young mothers right now and that's the thing that we keep talking about. I keep talking about them in therapy. Your child is more resilient than that. They're not going to be talking about you. You can let them cry themselves to sleep. You can do this. That's not going to damage them. And so I do think there's a danger and overreaction here uh, that we can mm-hmm. get into. But it is a, it is a, it is a change um, that's happening. I, I forget where I was going. Oh, how to help? How to help with your own psychological problems? So mm-hmm. please find someone to talk to um, that that you can share mm-hmm. that secret. Just it's unbelievable the relief we often find by just getting uh, our story out there and having someone listen to it. And then again, if, if that doesn't help, find a therapist who can kind of help walk you through that. Um, and again, there are great therapists out there. There are horrible therapists out there. There are therapists in between. And hopefully you can find the right one. If you don't, I will say this. If you go to a therapist and it's not a match, don't stick with them for long. I mean, I, I give them give them a shot three to four times, but if it's if it's not working after the the fourth or fifth time, um, don't be afraid to find someone else. Um, now, some people might not have a chance, depending on where you live. There might not be a lot of options, but um, right. But you're saying that just because it's not working with one doesn't mean that it, you might not have more success with that's someone right. else. Particularly when you talk about yeah. what I've talked about tonight and how important the relationship is with somebody. If you don't have that trusting relationship with your therapist, it's, not, it's probably not going to be helpful. But that doesn't mean therapy doesn't work. That might mean that the person that you're seeing is not a good match from you. They may even be a good therapist, but if it's not a good match, yeah. it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's great and uh, great things to, to think about there. And yeah, I've I've really enjoyed the the chance to to talk to you to to learn from uh, from your experiences and uh, the the things that that you've learned, the things that you've seen, um, the the stories that you have from from being able to to help people and from your own experiences too. That's that's been great. But before we wrap up here, did you have anything else that uh, that you wanted to talk about that? I didn't ask you or we didn't have a chance or uh, anything that you'd like to say before we wrap it up? Just This is just a small thing. The one thing that I sometimes get from people is, oh, if you're a therapist, you must be reading people all the time. You must be, uh, be able to read minds and do all kinds of crazy things. None of that is true. I, this is this is kind of pointless, but it is something that does annoy me sometimes. And and I'll say I'll often say that I hide that I'm a psychologist from people right away for that very reason. Not all the time, but many times because I don't want them to to not be themselves because they're afraid that I'm going to do that. Do I notice things? Sure. If it's if it's glaring, I'm going to pick it up. But if it's subtle. I can't read your mind no more than anybody else can. There's no <laughs> magic there. We don't have mind reading classes that we have to take in class that's in school so that we're doing those things. Those things just do not happen. So don't worry about approaching me or approaching somebody else. I'm not going to read your mind. So you're not going to read our mind, but do you find yourself like 
analyzing a situation or, or things like that more than maybe a normal, a regular person yes, does? Yes, there's, there's, there's no doubt that that's true. <laughs> uh, I, 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 do, I, I have to admit that I do do that. Uh, but but I, I do try. So this is, this is one of those tricky things because I don't try to do it, but sometimes you just can't help but do right. it uh, because of that. Um, it, it just it does happen. Um, but but yes, and which which again, so then people can be afraid of me. I understand that one, but <laughs> but but generally, I don't walk around thinking that person they're a mess. That person they need to go to therapy. Sometimes I'll say that. Yeah. I, I, I will. One other thing, I will say this. Yeah. It's it's been fascinating. I, I mentioned the enneagram earlier on. Somehow the enneagram has just caught on in Christian circles in a way that I never thought it would. I, I do. What, what is it? I, I'm actually not, not sure so, what you're talking about. When so you, the when Enneagram you is a it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of viewing personalities. There's nine personality types. Okay. There's many of them that have been out there through the year, through the years. This is the latest one. And so um, okay. it's probably the most complex. And it, the one concern I will say, it, it, it started, supposedly it started with a Catholic priest. I've talked way too much about Catholic priests as well today, but, but it's, it started with a Catholic priest supposedly in Central, Central or South America. So it has kind of a mystical, spiritual side to it. And, okay. but, but there's a lot of Christians that have taken to it. And so you get in the right Christian circles right now. They'll be saying, what are you in Enneagram number? And yeah, blah, 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 blah. So, oh, so okay. take a peek at it. If you don't like it, throw it away. If you like it, it's, it's helpful. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I find that helpful to figure out, oh, that person, yeah, they're coming from an eight. They're coming from a four or whatever the case is. Okay. Every system like that, though, I will say this, the, whether it's Myers-Briggs, whether it's DISC, whether it's any other system you use, uh, they have their strengths and weaknesses, um, and and they need to be they need to be looked at in that light. They we can't reduce people down to you know one or two <laughs> things. We're, we're we're more complex than yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, very good, and yeah, thanks uh, thanks a lot again for uh, for reaching out and suggesting that uh, that you might uh, I might enjoy having the chance to chat with you, and I definitely did. So. Uh, yeah, thanks again for for coming on the podcast and sharing. It's been very well, thank enjoyable. you. Like I said, you're you're a great interviewer. I enjoy talking to you as well. You do a good job. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening, and thank you Chuck for sharing your knowledge with us. I really enjoyed that conversation. I don't know a whole lot about psychology and counseling, so I really learned a lot from that. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me was when he was talking about the the power of forgiveness and how people have actually been found to be able to jump higher after forgiving and, and being able to forgive. And also the freedom that comes from, from sharing our, our darkest, deepest secrets and how that can be a powerful way to, to move past um, hurts or, or psychological problems that uh, someone is, is dealing with. I also really enjoyed the theme that developed towards the end where we were talking about different things, whether it's technology or psychology, and how things like that can often be used for tremendous good or tremendous evil. And we have to be careful and, and think about how those things are being used and, and how they're affecting us. And I thought that was some really good things to think about. So thank you, Chuck, for sharing your knowledge with us. It was a very enjoyable conversation. 
If you want to know more about this conversation or other ones that I've had, check out the website, everydayexpertise.ca. You can click on individual pages for different episodes there, and you can get links or show notes that go along with each episode if you want to find out more about them. Also, if you would like to connect with me for any reason, tell me what you think of the podcast, or give suggestions for guests, or let me know if you'd like to be a guest on the show, um, you can send me an email at contact at everydayexpertise.ca, or connect with me on social media, or uh, if you know me, just talk to me, that'd be, that'd be great too. If you use uh, Apple Podcasts to, to listen to the Everyday Expertise podcast, and you'd like to give a rating or review, um, go ahead and uh, give me some stars uh, telling me what you think of the show. And uh, yeah, that'd be great if you would do that as well. That's all for now. Join me again next week to learn from the expertise of everyday people.